going to uh, go back to Nehemiah. Daniel, would you lead, lead us in a prayer before we start? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship you and study your word. Father, we ask you this week to help us to encourage one another and to take what we learned this week and apply it to our lives and take it home with us. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, you know, if you're really going to Doing, doing the work of God, do you really think that everybody's going to be happy with you? You know, it's not going to work like that because there are enemies of the Lord and they will not like it if you are doing what's right. So if our goal is to make sure nobody's ever upset with us and nobody is ever uh, trying to fight against us, we just can't serve the Lord that way. And, uh, you know, Nehemiah has come back. All the world he's trying to do is to get this wall rebuilt to protect the city of God, the city of his father's tombs, to give security, to give even uh, 
some measure of honor to Jerusalem. And uh, boy, the enemies don't like it. And so the first tactic they used to try to stop the building was what? What? Discouragement by, in the form of mocking, insults, ridicule. And then the next thing they try is intimidation, threatening to attack. And that was a very, uh, you know, scary thing for the Israelites. What if they attack? And Satan brings things on in ways because about the same time they're really threatening to attack is when the initial enthusiasm is uh, waning and the people are just feeling exhausted and like it's just a monumental task still in front of them and it's just discouraging. You know, it, you just want to give up. You know, I, I was talking with a uh, guy last week. I've been talking to him a lot. Um, and he's actually done real well these last few days. But he started school, I think it was last Monday. And uh, he was talking about how, you know, difficult it is for him to be a Christian in school and how he has not done well with his language, with looking at girls and things like that. And uh, so we talked about that a lot. And, you know, he kind of challenged himself and really turned to the Lord. And so, you know, when he got home the first day, we Facebook messaged. And I said, how'd it go? And really, we had to devise some strategies for helping him. He did way better that first day than I thought possible. He hadn't said one bad word, which was amazing, given what, given what he'd done. He had maybe t taken two or three second glances, but way better than he normally would have. And all that, I said, wow, thank God. He's really helped you. He's really strengthened you. He said, yeah, but that was one day. We've got a whole year. Well, do you ever feel like that? You know, okay, so I, I did well for a day, maybe two, maybe three. But how in the world could I ever endure you know, I think that's kind of where they're at. Okay, so you get, you get a little bit of the wall project done, and you really are worn out, and there's a lot of rubbish to be carted off, and you're just getting started on the building of the walls, and there's all these threats. You see how discouraging that is? And uh, so that, this is a key point in, in what Nehemiah is doing. And notice he prays. He sets up a guard. That's 4-9. Then again in, in 4.13, he stations men in those low parts of the space behind the wall. You know, the places that would be most, most vulnerable, he puts men to fight, and he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So, they need to fight, but they also need to remember... The Lord who is great and awesome. The best way to dispel fear is to remember how great our God is and turn to Him and trust in Him. Does that mean we don't have to fight? No. Let's arm ourselves and be ready to fight. But we fight with trust and confidence in the Lord. That was how Nehemiah deals with these discouraging circumstances. And that's where we stopped. And there were people wanting to say things when we stopped. I don't know if you remember anything you wanted to say, but if anybody would like to say something at this point, you may, before we continue.
Anybody got something you want to say? All right. So let's uh, read the next section. What's going to happen then now? 15 to 23, Nehemiah 4. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought the plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, every one to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants went to construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked the construction, and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had a sword girded in his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears to daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the man of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off the wall. Okay, when our enemies heard that it was known to us. Now, you know, when they stationed these people in the exposed parts of the wall, well, armed people, then it's not going to be easy for the enemy just to come in and overrun Jerusalem. So uh, this... this uh, yeah, they realize, you know, this is, this is, this is, they're, they're defending themselves. And that God had frustrated their plan. Now, who frustrated their plan? You know, it's helpful to see that Nehemiah sees the Lord behind this. It wasn't just, well, they saw that we were going to fight. But he sees that ultimately it's the Lord that's frustrated their plan. He gives God the credit. You know, you remember a passage like Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where we're, in 12 he says to work out your soul salvation, and then in 13 he said, for it's God who's working in you. It, God works in us and we work. It's not either or, it's both together. So we were prepared and God frustrated their plans. Just a note, in Ezra 4, 5, years before, the enemies had hired counselors that frustrated the plans of the Jews. Now the tables are turned and the plans of these enemies are being frustrated. And so look what they do. They don't disarm, but they keep working. So you've got half of the servants working while half are defending the wall. And uh, you've got, you know, some people working with one hand and holding the weapon with the other. It's helpful that they were willing to keep working. You know, there's a balance. There's some defensive stuff that needs to be done, but they've still got a wall to build. If they had just stopped the wall rebuilding to all mobilize for the threat of war, that would not have been very helpful. So they're working out ways of continuing to rebuild as they work. And they have a system in place to meet an unexpected attack, sort of a warning system, where if... There, you know, there's trouble somewhere. They blow the trumpet and everybody rallies to fight. And notice again in the end of verse 20, our God will fight for us. They are never thinking of this as we're going to be strong enough in ourselves. We are going to fight. We are armed. We are ready. We are courageous. But it's our God that's fighting with us. You know, if, if it was up to them by themselves, they could never do it. 
Do they need to do something? Yes. But who's the, the strength? Who's the mastermind? It's the Lord. In all the work that we do, we are in a battle. We're fighting temptation. We're fighting to conquer territory for God, presenting the gospel to people and bringing people uh, out of darkness into light. And that's overwhelming work. Wow. There's how many billion people in the world, how many people who need to hear the gospel, how many false teachings and and deceptions and uh, sinful lust to bring them out of. But it's not us. Yes, we're working. God's using us. But God is the one who's the strength behind it. That gives us so much more confidence and courage in fighting our battle. So that's what they do. And they continue to work. They decide to keep the people in the city day and night. They, they keep, they're, they're kind of accelerating the building pace. And if they don't have to go back home and they just stay in the city, then they can just work from daylight to dark. They don't have to, uh, you know, go back home while it's still light and things like that. They can work from dawn until the stars come out. And that's what they do. That also avoids leaving the city exposed to attack at night. And uh, maybe increases the safety of the workers uh, by keeping them inside the city together at, at night. So they are really working hard. Uh, they even take their weapon with them to the water. I mean, they are, they are ready. They are prepared. This is a hard task. And so, you know, I want to emphasize again this point, and then I'll open it up for your comments. But I think one of the, the things that... I just, I believe this, I say it a lot, I have a hard time internalizing it. And that is, we must not assume that if there's opposition, we did something wrong. I just think that's such a common thing we jump to. You know, we, we teach somebody the gospel. You know, here's some friend, some acquaintance, some relative, and we have a Bible study with them. And at some point in time, they say, you know, I just don't believe what you're teaching. I don't agree with this. I don't like it. And I don't want you to come back. And what's the first thing we ask? What did I do wrong? Is that the right thing to ask? Now, should we be examining ourselves from time to time to make sure that we are teaching God's word as it's written? And that we're teaching with an attitude of love and wisdom and so forth? Well, of course. And that's true whether they accept or they reject the message. I mean, there might be some times when we water down the message so that somebody accepts it and we ought to ask, what did I do wrong when they accept it? You know, why do we never ask it then? But I don't think that the early Christians, when, you know, when Paul got run out of town, when he got beaten or stoned or imprisoned, was his first question, what did I do wrong? The, the fact there's opposition is not a sign that we've done wrong. We may do wrong. But I don't think we ought to assume that somebody rejecting the gospel or somebody not liking what we're doing, what we're saying, or how, we how we're living is necessarily a sign that we're doing anything wrong. Would you really think that Sanballat and Tobiah and company are going to be happy if they do the work of the Lord? You know, it's not that they did it badly or meanly or anything. They just didn't want that kind of work done. And Satan is not going to quit opposing the work of, of Christ. He's still against it, and he's still going to provide opposition. 
So we should not have that knee-jerk reaction, oh, somebody rejected the gospel, where did I go wrong? Well, thoughts and comments on all this. John? I thought verse 17 was interesting, how they, they took their load with one hand, and with the other they held their sword. If they all just took up their swords, then what Sambalat and Tobiah wanted would be true. And I think the same is for us, that for us to stop building up ourselves and others just to fight off Satan, that's not how we do it. We have to continue. We have to learn how to multitask and to build up while we defend. Good point. Yes. Jason. You know, this is a, this is a very frightening situation for these people. And you can imagine, you know, if this was me today or, you know, most people today, the excuses we would make, I would make, for not going about doing the work. And, uh, you know, uh, how many times I have, you know, not done what I should have done at, at threats of doing close to this. Yet they continue to press on and Takes a lot of courage to serve God. So, the difference between the, this building project and the temple project, when the threats were issued, then they stopped. They kept on doing what they wanted to do. Here, they stopped doing what they wanted to do. Moved into the city, clearly putting God's project first. Amen. Both facing similar threats, though. Yes, exactly. From similar people. <laughs> Dad. I yeah, really appreciate the principle of thought in verse 20, um, about whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. Um, I guess I was thinking about a lot of the tragedies um, in my life, and life of many of my friends, that could have been avoided if there was someone watching the blow trumpet and someone ready to respond when, when that one was given. Um, so I think it's got to be force to consider. Good point. When the enemy starts overcoming our brethren in one part of the wall... We need to rally and help support them and help them fight off the enemy. Good point. I like that. Yeah, excellent thought. Other thoughts? Mike. Good point. Yes, it's uh, those who are sick, I think, spiritually in James 5, call for the elders. Don't just expect them to have a crystal ball and know that you're weak spiritually and need help. Uh, other thoughts? Tom? I think it's interesting that they're always ready for attack. We need to be always ready, you know, have that in our mindset that we need to be, you know, in take where it pops up, you know, just all of a sudden we need to be ready for attack. Yeah, the New Testament would say, like, be watchful, be ready. You know, that's exactly right. Justin? This is certainly an extreme situation. So the, the work is heavy, the danger is heavy, but you, you also see them taking a very reasonable approach. They don't say, okay, you have to take as much as the load as you did before and carry your weapons. They say they loaded them in such a way that they could carry their weapons. Right. So it, maybe in our work for the Lord, we shouldn't expect two or three people to do all the work for everybody to be able to do everything that everybody else does. It's, it's reasonable to expect some people to do some things, other people to do other things. Yeah, they make the necessary adjustments to face the opposition, and yet they are able to continue building. So, yeah. Okay. Well, it would be nice if the only problems there were were problems from the enemies. 
But sometimes our biggest problems are from our own brethren. And that's chapter 5, and this is a really discouraging situation. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Well, now think about the context when many men come inside Jerusalem to stay and work on this wall. What does that mean they're not doing? Working on the farm or if they, some of them were merchants or whatever, they're not working. They're not making money. Um, I don't know what would happen if your dad, for a couple of months, quit working and wasn't making money. Would that be a hardship on some of your families? Some of your families could handle that fine. Some couldn't. We're in prosperous America. You know, it may have been even more difficult for these who returned from the exile. Obviously was for some of them. And so we've got a real problem. The morale is already low because of the fear of attack and the exhaustion. And now the unrest is mounting because of the situation. There are, there, there's this problem. You know, you've got several groups. You've got some people who didn't have property, didn't have farms, and they're short of food in verse 2. And they don't have anything to eat. You can't eat walls, you know. So what do they do for food? You've got some people in verse 3 that are landowners that are having to mortgage their property to get food. And then you've got some in verse 4. There's a pretty high, from what we know historically, a Persian uh, property tax, more or less. And there were those who happened to borrow money from their fellow countrymen at high interest rates to pay that property tax. And it was getting to the point that they had no resources to pay the interest. They had no resources to buy food. They have nothing else. They're going to have to sell their children to get the money to survive. And they're really upset because their brothers are charging the high interest rates. Their brothers who have the resources aren't providing them with money to spend for food and, and to be able to survive. And so what the enemy was not able to do, it almost looks like this internal problem is going to accomplish, and that is to stop the construction. And uh, things are so serious that even the wives are joining in the complaint. You can imagine they're the ones that are left behind at home with the hungry kids and the farm that needs mortgaged and whatever. So they're just really upset. Here they are doing all this work and now their families can't even eat. Can you imagine why that would have created a lot of tension among those uh, people? What are they going to do about that? Comments or thoughts on this situation? 
them. Do you think that this problem had been going on before the construction began, or did it, or was it just uh, made even worse because of the construction? You know, I guess I'm not sure that I have a way to know the answer to that. Wouldn't surprise me if there were economic difficulties already that were made worse by the construction. Because this would be, uh, if it was just going on for a long time before, it would be a problem, but it would really challenge my willingness to uh, sell my family to build a God's wall. Yes. And supposedly my family is a blessing, and having more children and the land that God gave me, to satisfy my countrymen creditors. You know, my fellow Jews who are requiring payment on the mortgage or the interest or whatever, that's even more frustrating because they should have had an interest in those walls as well. So. Maybe so, or maybe there's just not food available because they've not been planting. Maybe there is some economic, maybe there's some drought or whatever that may have accompanied this as well. William. I was going to say, thinking about what Dan was saying, I think sometimes what I've seen is people kind of sell their families, especially the preachers, because they give their life to the work, but then forget that they're not really providing for their family. And for somebody tells them that somebody not providing for their family is and it's more than just putting burdens in. You know, it's, it's about spending time with, with your kids, about spending time with your wife. And sometimes people put that on hold and then lose their families. So I feel like maybe, I, I just think somebody could walk away from this passage and just think the application and work so hard for the Lord, even give up your family when I've seen that happen and that just never ends well. I, I still know that's what God is trying to say with that. Is there a third option? Sometimes we may make those things either or. What about involving our family in our work? You know, I think that's helpful. I think there's a balance there. You know, that, yes, it would be possible, certainly, for someone to neglect their family. I've seen that, too. Um, sometimes that may almost be kind of an ego thing for a preacher. I'm so important. I have to do all these things. I've also seen preachers use their families as an excuse not to work hard. You know, well, I've got to spend time with my family. Well, what if you were working a real job? <laughs> you know, you wouldn't be able to spend 40 or 50 hours a week just with your family. So I think we need a balance, but I think trying to involve our family in the work when we can is very helpful. Joe. Um, I want or tragic or both. Psalm 15, for who may dwell in your tabernacle, Yeah. Here they are building the whole hill, doing that. So they may dwell in that hill, but they're not going to dwell in the deep hill. Yes. Yeah, good point. And we'll talk in just a minute more about this high interest rate business. Lee. Thank you. 
Yeah, now they did come back initially in 538, and this is about 445, although we think that probably Artaxerxes' decree tearing the wall back down again may have been just a few years before this. But, ooh, yeah, then. Yeah, so I think my well, take on this is that the primary cause of this problem is that they were diligently working the walls and somebody neglecting. Right. I really like that point that God's service was always. <coughs> Good point. Yes, it will. You would hope not at the hands of our brethren, but that's not always the way it is. And you know, I mean, when you just think about practical realities for us as Christians, we have opposition from enemies and, you know, maybe persecution, at least ridicule. We have hard tasks that sometimes exhaust us. But sometimes it's so discouraging that on top of that, You've got brethren in the Lord who are not helpful, who are discouraging, who are demanding, who are, you know, constantly seeking to fight and quarrel and be jealous and bitter and resentful and all of that. And, and, and I mean, that's just, that's really demoralizing. But we're not surprised that's been happening for a long time. You think about the book of Acts, you know, in the middle of all the persecution, then you've got the whole... Ananias and Sapphira problem. And then you've got the problem with the widows being neglected and the food service and the division that was imminent over that. I mean, sometimes it's almost the internal things that are worse than the enemy opposition. We expect that. So I want you to see what Nehemiah does about this. I mean, they, they confront him with this outcry. What does he do? You know, how do you handle that? You're Nehemiah. You're the leader. You've been sent almost to be a, as a governor. You know, really over this place. Certainly he was eventually, at least. Maybe he is to be taken that way now. So how does he deal with this? Uh, 6 to 13. <laughs> So what's the first reaction of Nehemiah personally? He's angry. There's something to be angry about here. But you know, too often that's the only response. We get angry, but we don't do anything. The next thing he did was what? Yes, he consulted with himself. <laughs> you know, uh, I had a trigonometry teacher who would always say, and then I said to myself, self. And, uh, but he needed to reflect. 
You know, sometimes we just jump into something, especially if we're angry. Do you tend to speak quickly when you're angry? Yeah, I do. Man, you get upset and wow. I mean, I'll jump into the middle of the conversation and cut somebody off because I'm so upset i got to say my piece. That's not very wise. It's much wiser to think it through and, and determine the wise and just way to follow. What should I do? So he was angry. He thought about it, reflected. And then he contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. He was willing to confront the leaders. Um, wow. I mean, sometimes it's hard to confront the important people. Because you kind of need their support. But he does. It was wrong what they were doing. They're almost like, you know, loan sharks or pawnbrokers or something like that, taking advantage of their brethren. And he makes that point. You are exacting usury. Each from his brother. They were to have uh, a love for their brethren to help them out. Not take advantage of their necessity to make money off their backs. The Old Testament said for them not to charge usury. I I believe that they did not have the right to loan money to their needy brethren at interest. That, that the they, you know, normally you borrow money, you pay money for the privilege of borrowing. So if you borrow $100, you have to pay back 110 or whatever. You know, you pay an amount for, for just having borrowed that money. So you were poor already, that's why you needed the $100, and then you have to not only pay it back, but that insult to injury, you have to pay some more. And that's what they were doing with their brethren, and there are a number of passages, the passage that uh, Joe mentioned in Psalm 15 is one of them, says not to charge interest when your brother's in need. I don't believe that the intention was that there was no kind of situation in which interest was appropriate or in which interest is appropriate. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 20, you may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you're about to enter to possess. Their fellow Jew is a brother. You don't charge interest to your brother. You help him out. Maybe you even give him something if he needs it. It's, a, it's different than a family, and they were a family as fellow Jews. The parable of the talents. Uh, though it's not the main point, he suggests that the one talent man could have at least put the money on interest. Those would have probably been like commercial loans, which is a different principle. The idea of charging a brother for what you loan him was not right according to the law and Nehemiah was very upset about it. He says in verse 8, We according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? You know, they had a responsibility to redeem their enslaved brothers so now if their interest means the bro- their brothers have to sell themselves and then they have to turn around and redeem them from the people who bought them, that doesn't make sense. They're more or less costing themselves money. You know, as, as, as Jews, they couldn't allow some foreigner to go and buy their brethren and them not go and, and buy them back. So this was just not, a, not the right thing to do at all. And, and Nehemiah is very upset with him. He says in verse 9, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
that you do not walk in the fear of our God. You know, you guys need to fear God. You're not doing the right thing. It is hard to confront. Now, confrontation is not always the right thing. Not always in every situation is that the appropriate thing. But there are times when confrontation is needed. And we've got to have the courage to be willing to confront and to say what needs to be said. Now, to Nehemiah's credit, in verse 10, this is a passage that not everybody interprets the same way. But he says, and likewise I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. I think that that the better explanation of this is that Nehemiah himself and his family had been involved in doing the same thing. And he's calling for a change and saying, we need to quit doing this. And we need to give back what we've taken. And that he's admitting his own involvement, and he's taking the lead in saying, we're going to make this right. That disarms opposition. If you also have been guilty, say so. And, and don't try to... To bluff your way through. Nehemiah says, we've also done this. So please give back to them this very day. Their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. And also the 1% uh, per month interest they've been charging. I think that's the implication of this. Uh, so he's, he's demanding no more interest. Return the, the what you've taken. Return the interest that you've taken. And he says, uh, and they say, we will give it back. And will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. You know, there is a concept in the Bible how brothers need to be generous with brothers. We don't take advantage of a brother's need. We give, we share, we love, we take care of each other. Now, are there limits to that? Yes, there are. If somebody won't work, neither let him eat. There are times when... There must be tough love with someone who's not willing to do what God wants them to do for their own benefit. But even the passage that says that in 2 Thessalonians 3 says in verse 13, But you, brethren, don't be weary of doing good. Continue to share. Don't share with the one who won't work, but share with the one who is in need. That's what God intends. He intends for us to make sacrifices. He intends for the brethren who had the resources to take care of their brethren who didn't have money because they were building on the wall. It wasn't that they weren't willing to work, they were doing the Lord's work. So, he called the priests, in verse 12, took an oath from them that they would do it. You know, he's not willing to take just their word for it. He gets them on record before God that they're going to give this money back. I don't think he totally trusts them. And then he shook out the front of his garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and empty. If you shake out a garment, you know, if it's, uh, you know, I don't know, if I shook out my jeans, the way the pockets are, I don't know that things would fall out. But if you imagine a robe with larger pockets and you shook it, then everything that was in it would fall out of it. And uh, that's the idea. And so he's calling on God to shake the property and possessions of any creditor that didn't fulfill his words. Just shake the promise breaker right out of everything he owned. That's, that's his, uh, uh, you know, request to God. That, that God would shake loose anything these people owned if they didn't fulfill this promise. 
and give back. And it says in the end of verse 13, then the people did according to this promise. When Nehemiah confronted boldly, when he humbly admitted his own involvement, and when he led them in doing the right thing, they did it. Sometimes you see somebody doing something that they shouldn't do. And you go and talk to everybody about it, except that person. Or you stew and fret and simmer about it, but you don't talk to that person. And we need to love the person when we talk to them. We need to go with a spirit of desire for that person to do what's right. But Nehemiah is a good pattern of a willingness to confront when confrontation is necessary. What was going on here was totally wrong. It was totally against God's will. And it was demoralizing the work on the wall. It needed to be confronted. Nehemiah did it. And they gave everything back. And the crisis was averted. Thoughts and comments on all this? Micah. Um, well, what do you mean, Micah, like, mad? I mean, if he was really doing it when he thought Well, he may have been upset with himself for having been involved in that as well. I think once you see what's going on, you can be upset even when you may have done some of it yourself. I don't know if his involvement was as extensive as the others either. John. It kind of seems like... Um, like, they might have been secretly keeping some back uh, in this scenario kind of thing to where, you know, you could leave some in your pockets without anyone knowing, maybe, but then even God knowing will shake that out and then everything else in. kind of seems what it might be talking about. I don't know about that. There is a passage uh, in Acts 18 uh, where Paul uses a similar figure. We mostly think about things like shaking the dust off your feet. But in Acts 18.6, uh, when they resisted and blasphemed, Paul shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So it seems like that may have been kind of a, you know, symbolic action that was typical. Other thoughts and questions coming? Gus. I don't know about all that, but certainly they needed to look to God's word instead of uh, what they've done in the past. Scott? If Nehemiah was involved in this, uh, taking everything in his second time, I'm giving this back to him as well. Another thing that does is disarm the excuse of the other two percent. This business is easy for you to say, we've got it, et cetera, et cetera. When somebody takes the lead and says, look, this is wrong, I'm going to take a loss here. That's a really strong example. It is really, it's kind of at the end of its wonderful life. Remember when the real stern banker, examiner, he even comes up and starts putting money in. You know, when he sees everybody else doing it. So when you're willing to sacrifice yourself, you hurt yourself. Great point. Amen. Yes. Other thoughts? Justin? This point back here in 5-4 where 
uh, people are saying we borrowed money from the king's tax. It's interesting what Nehemiah doesn't do to solve this issue. He doesn't say, oh, well, I'm sorry, you know, it's too bad the king's being so oppressive to you. That's not really the real issue. The real issue is their greed. I think we may do that sometimes. We may say, you know, I wouldn't be so full of lust if there weren't so many immodest women around. Or I wouldn't be so mean to my little brother or my little sister if they weren't so annoying. Uh, you know, but Paul, like when he gets in prison in Philippi, he doesn't say, oh, I can't wait till I get out of here and I'll really start doing something for the Lord. We shouldn't let our circumstances you know, keep us from addressing the real issues. And Nehemiah addresses the real heart of the problem. Good point. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Joe? The conclusion to all of this, they praise the Lord. And they got to mark And they don't thank Nehemiah. Amen? Yes. Uh, that's what happens when you're God-centered and how you deal with everything. Well, that's a very good point. Yeah. It's interesting that something so contrary to law and even Psalms became normal. From the top down, even the, the poor, they had to submit, it sounds like. They were willing to submit to something that shouldn't have happened, so it became normal. We can turn a blind eye to what the scriptures say if we want to. Other thoughts? Yeah, no. Yeah, what verse are you looking at? Yeah. Okay. He's, he's just saying uh, that, you know, they're forcing us to sell our sons and daughters as slaves. Um, you know, even though we're brothers, you know, and all that, look what they're doing to us. I think that's the general idea of this. All right, well, our time's up here, but good to think about those things. And, uh, you know, when we're doing the work of God, there's going to be problems. There's going to be opposition on the outside, and a lot of times there's going to be disappointments from our brethren. We have to continue following the Lord, doing what's right. Believe it or not, eventually this wall is going to get built in spite of all of this. But it would have never gotten built without the Lord. And without Nehemiah turning to the Lord and relying on his will. I think.
Our awesome Father in heaven, the one who, who hears us, the one who listens to us and saves us, you've created everything about us. You know our bodies, you know our, our, our frame, and remember that we are dust. Lord, we pray for our, our brother now who is, is sick and, and at the ER right now. We know that you are in control of everything, uh, but we all pray that he will find good health again soon. We thank you so much for the great blessings that we have, and thank you that uh, he's been able to come. Lord, we most all thank you that uh, his, his soul as well, uh, and, we, and we praise you for that as well. Uh, but Lord, we, we pray for him now. We, we ask that you might bring him back here and give him... Uh, that we may be encouraged by His presence. Furthermore, Lord, we are so thankful for all this. Uh, please hear our prayer. You are the God who heals us and gives us every good thing. You've given us all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 If I need to use the restroom, I'll do that now. I'll do that quickly. And uh, people can pass out a songbook. We'll have about a half an hour of singing. If you want to take out a song and leave it, that'll be fine too.